maybe go out sometime, catch a movie or something? The Man of Scream. Welcome to episode one of Man of Screen at the Movies. I am your host, Mike Jumo, and this is going to be the sister show for the Man of Screen podcast. I'd like to welcome you to this inaugural episode of Man of Screen at the Movies. Kind of the episode zero for this was born with Man of Screen Extra number 17, in which Bob Fisher and I talked about the 1966 Batman movie with Adam West. And uh, like I mentioned before, this is going to be a sister podcast to the traditional Man of Screen podcast, where I'm going to talk about some movies that 
came out around the time that I'm covering in the main podcast. Now that I'm in the mid-70s, I'm getting to the point where there will be movies that I've watched as a kid growing up that came out during that time period. Not too much, really, before before that. So, the way this is going to work is I'm going to be sticking these movie episodes in kind of whenever a release date coincides with the original air dates on the TV shows or the movies or whatever it is I'm covering on the regular Man of Screen podcast. And I will uh, make announcements on the show as to when these things will come out. Originally, I wasn't going to renumber these. Originally, I was going to put these in Man of Screen Extra, but I really decided this needed to be its own thing with its own numbering. So this is going to be Man of Screen at the movies, and this is technically Episode 1. You could consider Man of Screen Extra Episode 1 or even Episode 0 as uh, you will. But this is the first episode under this banner. And this is going to be the first of a stretch of two of these. Next week will be Star Wars, which will come, which originally premiered in 1977, which fills in the gap nicely between the uh, Super Friends season and the all-new Super Friends Hour season. But first, this week, I'm going to cover what many consider a sports movie, but I kind of don't. I will be covering Rocky, starring Sylvester Stallone, which came out in 1976. So... But before I get to that, I do have some feedback. I see I took the feedback for Man of Screen Extra number 17, and I decided to read it in this episode. So I did get quite a bit of feedback from the episode regarding Batman 66, so I want to get to that here. The first uh, feedback I have is from Gene Hendricks. Gene is the host of the uh, Hammer Strikes blog and the Hammer podcast. He's also the Twitter keeper for the Two True Freaks uh, podcast network. And uh, Gene's subject here is great work. Old Chum, Mike and Bob. I wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed the first episode of the series within a series where you looked at Batman the movie. I don't remember when I saw the movie itself, but I grew up with reruns of the 66 series, so this was my cup of tea. Yes, it's silly, but the actors are really giving it their all, and that makes it really fun to watch. I I thought that I should point out that what Bob was thinking of as two movies was, in fact, one, Return to the Batcave, the the Misadventures of Adam and Bert follows Adam West and Burt Ward as they try to get the Batmobile back from Julie Newmar and Frank Gorshin. This is broken up by flashback scenes where the pair remember what it was like filming the series. It's in these flashbacks that we get the different actors playing parts of Adam and Burt. It's pretty fun to watch and apparently available on YouTube. I'm I'm really looking forward to the rest of the series, especially a little movie from the late 70s set among the stars. No, not that one. The other one. And the one that's a bit of a trek. And uh, Gene put a little uh, winky uh, emoji there. And that's from Gene. So I'd like to uh, thank Gene for writing in. I really don't have any knowledge of uh, this uh, movie that he's pointing out. I'll have to check it out one day. Return to the Batcave, The Misadventures of Adam and Bert. And this email spurred some back and forth between me and Gene, actually. And uh, what Gene is referring to is Star Trek The Motion Picture, which came out in 79, I want to believe. So I will be covering that along with the rest of the Star Trek movies when I get to their release dates. And... Gene and I have already spoke. The plan is at the moment to have Gene on the show, and I'm going to talk to him over the summer about that, uh, see if we can get that scheduled. Even if we record it a few months in advance, it can sit there until it needs to come out. But Gene's a big fan of Star Trek The Motion Picture. I like it, but it's not as up there for me uh, as some of the other Trek movies. But I don't have anything against it, and I anticipate when that time comes, that'll be a pretty good conversation. So I'd like to uh, thank Gene for writing in. The next uh, bit of feedback is from Dave McIlvenny. Dave is writing in on Manuscript Action number 17, obviously. <laughs> and uh, Dave writes, Greetings, Mike and Bob. I really enjoyed this look back at the 1966 Batman movie. I always enjoyed the TV show of the time. Yeah, it's campy, but 
that was kind of the point. As you both said, if someone doesn't like the camp, they probably shouldn't be watching this in the first place. Certainly, the sensibility of the TV show and the movie aren't, and weren't at the time, a big secret. There were a couple of points I think I can address. The character of Anne Harriet was introduced in the comics in 1964, just about the time that Alfred was temporarily killed off. Many people agree that the swapping out of a male character in an all-male household with a female character was a quote-unquote defensive move by DC against his occasional snide comments that Bruce and Dick were living a homosexual dream. See Dr. Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent. And this was continued into the TV show and movie. Interestingly, in the comics, the Batman foe, the Outsider, was revealed to be the not-dead but amnesiac Alfred, cured and returned to Wayne Manor in 1966, just around the time the TV series began to air. As for the possibility of an onset animosity between Eartha Kitt and Adam West, I haven't been able to verify that at all, but I do wonder, given the time period, 1966, and racial attitudes, particularly in TV markets in the southern U.S., some local TV stations and possibly some sponsors may have frowned on any hint of a, of a romantic relationship between those two stars, so they might have been told to play it cool on camera. Or perhaps Eartha Kitt, who was certainly aware of such things, may have made that sort of decision herself. As for Cesar Romero's mustache, it would have been fun to see a mustache off between him and Henry Cavill from the Justice League movie. As usual, a fun episode, and I'm looking forward to whatever comes next. Live long and prosper, Dave. And again, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. I really don't have a ton to add. Dave's uh, always brings lots of knowledge when he uh, writes in. But I'm going to be hearing mustache jokes regarding Henry Cavill forever. It's still going on. Here we are, five months removed from Justice League. It wasn't that bad, the mustache. The one scene, yes, but for the most part, it wasn't. The uh, last three movies that featured Superman, you know, was kind of a fan beatdown in a lot of ways, and I'm just tired of it. Tired of fandom sometimes. Sometimes I wish I could just enjoy these films, or not enjoy the films as much as I want to in a vacuum. But I can't, so I may as well shout it to the ether just like everybody else is. So, thank you, Dave, for writing in. And my last bit of feedback is from Chris Cavanaugh, and Chris writes in. Hello, Mike and Bob. I'm only about 30 minutes into your Batman movie review, but I had a few initial thoughts to send you away. I turned 9 in the summer of 66 when the movie came out, and I started reading Batman in the summer of 65. I always felt the Batman comics transitioned twice in the 60s. In 1964, of course, with the new look, but then again in the late 60s when you could see more of the Neil Adams influence and there was a concerted effort to escape the campiness of the TV show. Tomorrow's The Batcave Companion is a great book that covers both the Silver and Bronze Age Batman. The first chapter, The New Look, Why Batman Needed to Fix-It Man, addresses Mort Weisinger's influence on Jack Schiff and pre-1964 Batman and the decision to bring in Julius Schwartz as an editor. And uh, Chris put a link here to an Amazon link for the book, which I may or may not remember to put in the show notes. But the uh, if you're interested in checking it out, it's, a tomo- it's The Batcave Companion. Regarding problems keeping Burt's endowment in place, I've always believed this was just Burt's own hype, as evidenced in his Boy Wonder book, rather than a real problem. Of course, Robin's flesh-colored tights were necessary, but George Reeves never seemed to have any problems with a bulge in his super suit. No, George Reeves didn't, but there were supermen beyond him that seemed to have bulge issues. I'm sorry, but Christopher Reeve definitely led the world in super junk. I'm not sure Henry Cavill is too far behind him. And and Chris provided another link to Amazon.com. The uh, TV movie Bob was trying to recall was Return to the Batcave. I thought the actors playing Adam and Dick, Adam and Bert, Chris wrote Adam and Dick, but he probably meant Adam and Bert, as Dick is the character's name. Either way, he thought the actors captured them well. He enjoyed it. It's a fun movie. And that was the end of the first letter that Chris sent in. Uh, The next day, Chris sent in an addendum. 
And he wrote, Yesterday I listened to the next 30 minutes, and you mentioned that Anne Harriet made her comments debut in 1964. I thought I'd add that DC had actually killed off Alfred, saving Batman and Robin with the advent of the new look so they could bring a woman into Wayne Manor. Alfred was gone for a couple of years, but when he was used on the TV show and the, the comics had to bring him back to life, which they did in Detective Comics 356, cover date October 1966. I forgot to mention last time that Adam West's daughter, Nina, has a cameo in Return to the Batcave as Bert's one-night stand. I'm sure... At- I'm sure Adam West was thrilled with that. So I'd like to thank Chris as well as David Jean for writing in. You can write in on this on this episode I'm going to talk about now or, what, or whichever other episode you want to write in on, manofscreen at gmail.com. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about some background information on 1976's Rocky. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Man when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes. I've got a question, though. I'm just curious. Why doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? folks and here is some background on rocky it was directed by john g avilton produced by robert chartoff and erwin winkler written by sylvester stallone music by bill conti cinematography by james crabe it was edited by richard halsey scott conrad production company was uh chartoff winkler productions and was distributed by united artists New York City uh, premiere date was November 21st, 1976, with its official release on December 3rd of 1976. Running time was 119 minutes, and on a, it was made on a $1.1 million budget, and it had a total box office gross of $225 million. As I mentioned above, this uh, screenplay for Rocky was, as legend would say, was written in three and a half days short, by Sylvester Stallone shortly after he uh, watched the uh, Championship match between Muhammad Ali and Chuck Webner at the Richfield Coliseum in Richfield, Ohio on March 24th of 75. Basically what happened in that match was Webner was TKO'd in the 15th round by Ali, but nobody expected him to last as long as he did. And apparently this has motivated 
Stallone to begin work on Rocky, although Stallone denies that Webner provided any inspiration for the script, probably so he didn't uh, have to pay Webner any money. Webner did actually file a lawsuit, which was eventually settled for an undisclosed amount. So Stallone uh, was uh, sh- uh, shopping his script. Uh, Stallone really wasn't very known for much at the time. 1976 was the very beginning of his career, and United Artists liked it, but they viewed it as a possible vehicle for a well-established star. You know, think about Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill, Burt Reynolds, or James Caan. But Stallone insisted on portraying the title character himself to the point where he actually refused to sell the script unless he would get to portray the title character. I guess he made it part of his contract. I mean, when you're a young actor or screenwriter trying to establish yourself, it takes a lot of balls to refuse to sell your script that the studio wanted to buy if they don't let you star in it. I mean, the story goes that Stallone said he never would have forgiven himself had had it become a success with someone else in the lead. But and I guess for for Stallone's sake it's a good stick that he did because this is one of this is to me the defining role of Sylvester Stallone's career. When Sylvester Stallone finally hangs it up whenever he decides to hang it up or whenever it gets hung up for him, people will remember him for two roles, Rocky Balboa and John Rambo. Now John Rambo was, as I recall, First Blood was from a book, so John Rambo was created there. Rocky Balboa is, for all intents and purposes, Sylvester Stallone's baby. So this role has def- created his career and defined it. He will always be Rocky. And so I'm glad that he was able to make that deal with UA to star in the film. I'm not sure it would have been the same. I don't know if this film would have had the same success with somebody else in the lead. I mean, Stallone was clearly writing this for himself to play and... Stallone is a big fan of boxing, so he basically wrote what he knew, and the role, he knew what he wanted to do, and like I said, I think Stallone, who, you know, for all intents and purposes to me, has always been kind of a a block of wood, but so is Rocky. Rocky's a block of wood as well, not very intelligent, and the role seems, seemed perfect for Stallone, a role he definitely poured his heart and soul in that maybe a Robert Redford type or a James Caan may not have, so... It was an interesting road to getting this movie made. According to uh, some of the research I've been able to dig up, St- Stallone knew that the producers, Erwin Winkler and Robert Chartoff's contract with the UA, enabled them to greenlight a project if the budget was kept low enough. And the producers collateralized any possible losses from Rocky with their big-budget entry, New York, New York. Which, in a ironic reversal, New York, New York bombed. And... The losses for New York, New York were actually covered by the success of Rocky, whereas New York, New York was really expected to cover Rocky. It actually turned out to be the other way around. Rocky covered New York, New York. And the film was made on a budget of $1,075,000, with a further $100,000 spent on producer's fees and $4.2 million on advertising costs. So, when you think about it, about one point five ish and the film made... Uh, over $100 million in the U.S., $117 million according to Box Office Mojo, and if Wikipedia is $225 million is to believe, that's a worldwide gross. So, yeah, it made about 100 times more than its production budget domestically. That's a success by any... That is a success. If you can make a $1 million movie and bring home $117 million, you've done something right. You've done something that definitely connects with the people. And... I would love to see more movies made on smaller budgets. I mean, now, you know, even if you 
adjusted Rocky's budget for inflation, that's still a, a movie made for $4 million to, in today's money. Creed was made, which is the last movie to feature Stallone as Rocky, the most recent, rather. That was made for $35 million and it only grossed worldwide, 173. If you adjust, I mean, even in raw numbers alone, that's less than the gross of Rocky. So, in this world of 250 million blockbusters, I'd love to see movies made on smaller budgets do extremely well. You know, come out. I'd love to see some of these film budgets uh, scaled back a little bit. So, you know, maybe a film doesn't need to make a billion dollars to be a success. You know, for as a critical beating as Batman v Superman took, you know, and, and I understand they they ran up a cost of 300 million, same as Justice League, but you know, I I can see you know Justice League being seen as a bit of a failure, but Batman v Superman, I have a hard time seeing an 872 million dollar overall take as a failure financially. Even Justice League again is 600 plus. Yeah, that they were looking for more, not less. But anyway, back to Rocky. The uh, cast is, like I mentioned, uh, Sylvester Stallone as Robert Rocky Balboa, Talia Shire as Adriana Adrienne Pinino, Burt Young as Paulie Pinino, Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed, Batman alum Burgess Meredith as Mickey Goldmill, Thayer David as Miles Jurgens, Joe Spinell as Tony Gazo, Tony Burton as Tony Duke Evers, and Pedro Lovell as Spider Rico. And a little bit more about... The producers uh, chart off and Winkler were enthusiastic about the script and the idea of Stallone playing the lead, but they were hesitant about having an unknown headline the film, and they had difficulty casting with Apollo Creed and Adrian being cast very late in their pre-production period. Carrie Snodgrass was originally, uh, according to the Rocky scrapbook, Carrie Snodgrass was originally chosen to play Adrian, but a money dispute forced the producers to look elsewhere. Susan Sarandon auditioned for the role, but was deemed to be too pretty for the character who was, you know, kind of a homely, uh, socially awkward person, individual. And that's when the uh, producers and the director uh, kind of insisted that Talia Shire uh, take the role. Due to the film's low budget, uh, members of Stallone's family had to play some minor roles. His uh, father is uh, rings the bell to signal the start and end of a round, and Sylvester's uh, brother Frank played a street corner singer, and his wife was a still photographer. Other cameos included uh, former Philadelphia and then current L.A. TV sportscaster Stu Nahan playing himself, alongside radio and TV broadcaster Bill Baldwin. Lloyd Kaufman, the uh, founder of the independent film company Troma, appeared as a drunk. Diana Lewis has a small scene as a TV news reporter. And I'm going to have to look back at the movie because I knew about this, but didn't uh, look. Michael Dorn, who we all know as Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, Made his acting debut in this film as one of Creed's bodyguards. I'll have to go back and look. The movie got overall positive reviews after it was uh, after its debut. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four and said Stallone reminded him of a young Marlon Brando. And this was the film that kind of uh, put Stallone on the map, like I mentioned before. The m- four decades later, the film still enjoys a high reputation. It has a ninety-three percent fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on fifty-four reviews and. In 2006, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It also won three Oscars. Uh, It won Best Picture. It won a Best Director Award for John G. Abelson. And it won Best Film Editing for Richard Halsey and Scott Conrad. Other nominations included Sylvester Stallone for Best Actor, 
Talia Shire for Best Actress, Stallone for Best Original Screenplay, Burgess Meredith for Best Supporting Actor, Burt Young and Burt Young for Best Supporting Actor. And uh, Bill Conti, Carol Connors, and Ann Robbins were nominated for Best Music. And Warren, Harry Warren Tetrick, William McCahey, Lyle Burbridge, and Bud Alper were nominated for Best Sound. The uh, Directors Guild of America awarded Rocky its annual award for Best Film of the Year in 1976. And in 2006, Sylvester Stallone's original screenplay for Rocky was selected for the Writers Guild of America Award as the 78th Best Screenplay of All Time. So that's pretty uh, high praise. In June 2008, AFI revealed its 10 Top 10, the best 10 films in 10 classic American film genres, and Rocky was acknowledged as the second best film in the sports genre, after Raging Bull. Kind of curious about what the other films on that list are. In 2008, Rocky was chosen by the British film magazine Empire as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time. In contrast, uh, three years earlier, Rocky was number 9 on their list of the top 10 worst pictures to win Best Picture Oscar. I mean, I guess even if you're among the worst of the best, you're still among the best. It also has appeared on several of the AFI's 100 Years lists. It's number 78 in uh, the 100 Years, 100 Movies list from 1998. It also uh, inspired Rocky the Musical, which I have not seen. I'm not sure I plan on seeing it. I have a hard time seeing anybody other than Sylvester Stallone as Rocky. You know, just because this film was... This character is so much him. You know, it's not like Superman, where, you know, people have... Different actors have played the role over the decades. You know, it's so hard to separate Rocky Balboa from Sylvester Stallone because the role comes from him. He wrote it, he started it, he created this this character in almost every in every fashion. So I'm not sure I ever want to see anybody else inhabit Rocky other than Stallone. But anyway, the musical was written by Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, with the book by Thomas Meehan based on the film. The musical premiered in Hamburg, Germany in October 2012, and it began performances at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway on February 11th, 2014, and officially opened on March 13th, 2014. I am unsure if it is still playing on Broadway, but I am sure if you do a quick internet search, you'll be able to find that, if you're interested. So, that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to take a little bit, take a look at the movie. Hang around, folks. Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins, along with my friends, Dr. Bill Robinson... Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Uh... Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So, tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at twotruefreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to head now into our synopsis for Rocky. And this synopsis is brought to you by Wikipedia. In late 1975, the heavyweight boxing world champion, Apollo Creed, announced his plan to hold the title bout in Philadelphia during the upcoming United States Bicentennial. However, he is informed five weeks from the fight date that his scheduled opponent is unable to compete due to an injured hand. With all other potential replacements booked up or otherwise unavailable, Creed decides to spice things up by giving a local contender a chance to challenge him. He settles in on Rocky Balboa, an aspiring southpaw boxer from an Italian neighborhood of Philadelphia, known by the nickname The Italian Stallion. Rocky meets with promoter Miles Jurgens, presuming Creed is seeking local sparring partners. Balboa! 
How are you? George Jenkins. Take a chair, please. Thanks. Mr. Belmont. Call me Rocky. It's Rocky. Tell me, Rocky, you've got any representation? You have a manager? Uh, no, it's just me. Rocky, I've got a proposition. Of the sparring. Well, I just said I know you're looking for sparring partners, and I just want to say I'm very available, you know. Sure you are. Absolutely. Uh, sparring with the chairman would be an honor, and you know what, Mr. Jerkin? What? I wouldn't take no cheap shots either. I'd really do a good sparring partner, you know. You don't understand me, Rocky. My proposition's this. Would you be interested in fighting Apollo Creed for the World Heavyweight Championship? Rocky. Apollo see you fight. He likes you. He wants to fight you. Well, it's just that you see, uh, I fight in clubs, you know. I'm really a ham and egg. This guy, he's the best, and uh, it wouldn't be such a good fight. Thank you very much, you know. I appreciate it. Rocky, you believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. Although Creed does. And he's gonna prove it to the whole world by giving an unknown a shot at the title. And that unknown is you. He picked you, Rocky. It's the chance of a lifetime. You can't pass it by. Rocky reluctantly agrees to the fight, which will pay him $150,000. After several weeks of training using whatever he can find, including meat carcasses and punching bags, Rocky accepts an offer of assistance from former boxer Mickey, Mighty Mick Goldmill, a respected trainer and former bantamweight fighter from the 1920s, who always criticized Rocky for wasting his potential. Hey, you got something for me? Yeah, there was some guy here from Miles Jurgens looking for you. They need sparring partners for follow Creed. Put me on. There's a car. When was it here? About an hour ago. They're probably looking for sparring partners for Creed, you know? I said that before, you dumb Jago! You know, I've been coming in for six years, and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know? I want to know how! Okay, I'm going to tell you. Because you had the talent to become a good fighter. And instead of that, you became a leg-breaker to some cheap second-rate loan shark. To living? It's a waste of life! Meanwhile, Rocky meets Adrian Panino, who was working part-time at the J&M Tropical Fish Pet Store. He begins to build a romantic relationship with Adrian, culminating in a kiss. Adrian's brother, Paulie, becomes jealous of Rocky's success. I don't want nothing from you. I don't want nothing from you. This ain't no charity case. Get out of my house. It's not just your house. You're no friend no more. Get out of my house, I just said. Fuck you, get out of my house. Yo. Hold that side, Paulie. I don't want you missing, huh? And I don't raise you to go with this scumbag. Yeah, come on! You wanna hit on me? Come on! I'll break both your arms so they don't work for you. That's right, I'm not good enough to meet with Gazzo! Woo! That's what I think of Gazzo! Now you're a big shot fighter on the way up, you don't even throw a clump to your friend Paulie! When I go and get your meat every morning, you forgot that man, I even give you my 
busted. What? Oh, You're not a virgin. You let him go. She's dusty. Oh. But Rocky calms him by agreeing to advertise his meatpacking business before the upcoming fight. The night before the fight, Rocky begins to lose confidence after touring the arena. He confesses to Adrian that he does not expect to win. You can't do it. What? I can't beat him. Apollo? Yeah. I've been out there walking around, thinking. I mean, who am I kidding? I ain't even in the guy's league. You work so hard. Yeah, it don't matter, because I was nobody before. Don't say that. Oh, come on, Adrian, it's true. I was nobody. That don't matter either, you know? Because I was thinking. It really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go to distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, seeing that bell rings and I'm still standing. For the first time in my life, you see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. On New Year's Day, the fight is held, with Creed making a dramatic entrance dressed as George Washington and then Uncle Sam. Taking advantage of his overconfidence, Rocky knocks him down in the first round, the first time that Creed has ever been knocked down. Humiliated, Creed takes Rocky more seriously for the rest of the fight, though his ego never fully fades. The fight goes on for the full 15 rounds, with both combatants sustaining various injuries. As the fight progresses, Creed's superior skill is countered by Rocky's apparently unlimited ability to absorb punches and his dogged refusal to go down. As the final round bell sounds, with both fighters locked in each other's arms, they promise to each other that there will be no rematch. After the fight, the sportscasters and audience go wild. Rocky, you went the distance. You went the 15 rounds. How do you feel? All right, all right. What are you thinking about when that buzzer's out for that line? Adrian! What do you think about when the 15th round when you're coming out? What Rocky? Yeah. I love you. 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 I love you
now. Obviously, with this Man of Screen at the Movies series that I'm going to be doing, I am not going to do any movies I don't like. Let's just throw that right out there. This is not an index like the Man of Screen podcast. You know, the Man of Screen podcast is going to be a completionist podcast for as long as I can keep it going. So therefore, I have to cover things that I may not necessarily like. For instance, I have absolutely no glove for Super Pup or the musical, which, is, which I just covered a few weeks ago. But these episodes are going to be more of a celebration of movies that I have a, uh, a fondness for as I was growing up. Now, I didn't necessarily grow up with this film. I mean, obviously, the film was always around. I was born four years after it came out. I was always aware of it. Maybe watched it bits and pieces of all five of them over the uh, course of the 80s. But it probably wasn't until about 2006 that I actually decided to sit down and watch all five movies and eventually leading up to the sixth. So, like I said, I do love this movie. One of the things I love about this movie is that it's not a quote-unquote sports movie. I mean, not in the sense of a film like Major League, where it's about a, a team going from worst to first to win the championship. This film is really about a nobody who gets his shot to prove he can hang with the big boys, hang with the professionals, and outlines the fear and trepidations that go with taking that step into the unknown. It's about whether is Rocky's going to take his shot, that maybe he can get out of the life he knows, or will he remain in the life he knows? I mean, he's a nobody living in a Philadelphia slum with two turtles that he named Cuff and Link, and he's his day job is he's an enforcer for a loan shark. I mean, he, he definitely needs to get out of that, and... What I like about the role of the sport in this movie is that the sport is just what he does. This movie is about the man and not the sport, which to me puts it among the elite sports films. And for those of you who may or may not know, Stallone was one of the many people who would audition for the role of Superman in Superman the movie, before Richard Donner ultimately cast Christopher Reeve. Now Stallone's, you know, he's got the look, he's got the the black hair, he's got the chiseled features, but his voice is too mumbly. I don't think Sylvester Stallone has ever met a world he couldn't mumble or garble. And I, I really couldn't see him projecting the way Christopher Reeve does. Sylvester Stallone doesn't sound like Superman, so I definitely couldn't see him in the role. Now, the pet shop gives us our first look at Talia Shire as Adrian. She's a shy, mousy woman, and she's working in the pet shop. And the costume and the glasses, you know, those kind of uh, white pointed glasses are designed to hide Talia Shire's beauty as it will develop as she becomes a little more outgoing throughout the course of the film. She starts off as very socially awkward, and you're going to see through her relationship with Rocky that it's going to help her emerge and become more of a complete person instead of the little mousy woman that her older brother kind of rags on. We don't really get a lot of information about Paulie and Adrian, at least their relationship, their brother and sister, but it seems as though Paulie's quite a bit older than Adrian, and through some of the dialogue in the film, it's apparently he played some role in raising her, so he must be quite a bit older than she is. Alright, here's what I found on ages. Now, I don't know how accurate this is, but according to the uh, Rocky uh, wiki, I don't know where this information came from or how accurate it is, but it says that Paulie was born in 1940, and Adrian was born in, 19, in 1950, so he's 10 years older than she is. Which sounds about right, even though Paulie mentions that she's pushing 30. She's about 25 when, during that film, and Rocky is around 30. as He's listed as being born in 1945. Which kind of jives, because Rocky does say he's about 30 in the film. Now back to Rocky and uh, Adrian. You could tell that there is some kind of attraction between them. 
with the exchanging of looks between them and the editing always shows uh, one of them sneaking a glance at the other. And uh, in his day job, like I mentioned before, Rocky is a collector for a loan shark and he's ordered to uh, break a debtor's thumb, but doesn't, even though the debtor is short cash by about 70 bucks. So early on, we can tell that he's doing this because he has to, you know, not because he particularly wants to. It's, it's, Rocky's not a very intelligent man. He's probably didn't finish school probably has very few job prospects so this is the kind of job that somebody like rocky is probably stuck with you know he makes money he makes a little bit of money fighting if you pay attention to to the very beginning of the film when he's getting his payout for the match with spider rico he only nets about 40 bucks which in today's dollars is about 175 can you imagine uh, taking all that beating for 175 dollars so rocky is a collector for a loan shark and then we get our first look at the, at the trainer, Burgess Meredith, as Mickey, who basically unceremoniously uh, cleaned out Rocky's locker for him and put it uh, on a hook in a bag, basically kicking him out of the gym, who has basically decided Rocky is not contender enough to keep his locker space. Even though I presume Rocky has been paying for that locker space for six years in favor of Gipper, who Micker, Mickey considers to be a contender. While he is convinced that Rocky is kind of fighting... Uh, low-level boxers, and this uh, rift here between Rocky and Mickey is not going to go away throughout the course of the film. We're going to get an explanation for why Mickey feels this way. So, here he is getting put out of his gym, and you know what? He is going to uh, develop a bit of a chip on his shoulder. And here we get our first look at Burt Young as Paulie, Rocky's best friend. They're both loyal to each other. And, you know, Burt Young, not Burt Young, but Paulie has some flaws. He's a raging alcoholic. He's extremely negative. He's mean, nasty, boorish, just an extremely unlikable character. Has nothing good to say about his sister. And he seems to only want to get in with Rocky's boss. I think he's kind of angling for Rocky's job. Because, you know, like him, he is a butcher in a meatpacking plant. That's less than he wants. He's probably, according to that, what I found on that wiki page, he's about... 40, he's about 35 years old, so his life is also not going the way he wants it to. None of these people's lives are going the way they want them to. And that will bring us to Apollo Creed. And he's on TV giving an interview. He's got his fight coming up, and uh, Rocky is watching it because it's clear he's thinking about Mickey, because he seems to indicate that he regrets that he never took a shot at becoming a professional boxer. And he just kind of continued fighting low-level fights, keeping his uh, face pretty, and you know, never really did anything uh, with his talent. And then there's this young girl, Marie, who Rocky seems to have taken an interest in her cleaning up her act. She's smoking, she's obstinate, she doesn't take him very seriously, and she kind of uh, mouths off to him in the way that a teenager would. And why not? He's giving an unsolicited lecture, but she's not running away from him. Apparently she knows him, has enough respect for him to stay and hang around, but... He wants to help her get on a better path. So, you know, you can tell Rocky cares about people. I think he doesn't necessarily want people to, young people to at least kind of fall in the same path that he did. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom underneath that rugged exterior, but it just comes out in weird ways because he can't really express himself that well. All right. So Apollo was still having uh, trouble finding an opponent after his uh, regularly scheduled opponent got a hand-to-hand injury. He comes up with the idea of giving a local fighter a shot at the title. Of course, he's thinking this is an easy win for himself and not really expecting much of a battle. That's why it's called Smart. And Apollo Creed picks Rocky on the basis of his Italian stallion nickname. 
which makes him a descendant of Christopher Columbus. You know, the guy who uh, crashed into the Caribbean, thought it was India, and therefore we get a federal holiday. So he picks Rocky. There will be no American Idol-type auditioning for this. He goldenly goes into the, I guess, the directory of boxers, whoever got boxing licenses in Philadelphia, and he just pointed out Rocky, and here we go. Now it's Thanksgiving, and Rocky comes home with Paulie to his house to uh, kind of help Rocky get a date with his sister. I think Paulie's just trying to find a way to get his sister out of the house and get her to move out. I don't really think he cares where his sister goes as long as she just goes. And she is, you know, socially awkward. She's probably been abused in some way as a child, just kind of my dime store psychoanalysis. And Paulie's, you know, and she uses the excuse that she's got the turkey in the oven, and of course it's Thanksgiving. And uh, Paulie's uh, way to motivate her is to pull the turkey out of the oven and kind of throw it out into the back alley. Classy. That is no way to treat a Thanksgiving dinner. So, eventually, after some back and forth, a scene of Rocky talking to a door, trying to get Adrian to go out with him. I must say, the door racks about as well as Stallone does. And they go out, and they walk into an ice skating rink that's closed. I don't necessarily understand that if the rink was closed, how they were able to just walk in, why was it unlocked, but I guess it's the magic of the movies. And this is part of the scene where Adrian starts her transformation. By the end of their 10 minutes on the ice, we have to uh, kind of Rocky con this uh, poor Zamboni operator to give them 10 minutes on the ice. She starts to contribute to the conversation by asking him why he fights. You know, in one of those rare instances where Rocky gives her an opportunity to say anything because he just rambles on and on and on. It's very uncomfortable to watch sometimes. I mean, he's laying it on pretty thick, and Asia wants to leave and kind of run home and hide, which is what she's comfortable doing, but she even goes into his apartment after they leave the ice rink, which is a huge step outside of her comfort zone, which is what this movie is about, you know, going out of your comfort zone and taking risks and trying to improve your life in whatever way that you can. And when they go into the apartment, the uh, juxtaposition is very stark. Rocky, as soon as he gets in, he's taking off his jacket and sweater, and he's basically down to a wife beater, while Adrian is still wearing her coat. And there's something that feels almost predatory about this scene. I mean, Rocky is, you know, like I said, laying it on thick, telling her he wants to kiss her, and this, that, and the other thing. And can't he tell she's uncomfortable? I mean, she's not giving him any signals that show she's interested in. Just asking, expressing that she doesn't understand why somebody would willingly box. The question is, does he not recognize it, or does he not care? Now, there's no indication about how far that goes, but she eventually does kiss him back, and they both end up on the floor as the scene ends. We are meant to, I guess, decide how far that scene went in our heads. But does she want to, or does she give in? That question is not really answered. So, after that, we uh, find out Mickey's problem with Rocky, that he wasted his boxing talent. And look, Mickey's running a business. He makes his money based on how well his fighters do, so it's easy to understand why he can't waste a ton of time with Rocky, who's not going anywhere. So, Rocky's from Apollo's promoter will call Rocky in, basically telling Rocky that he's going to be a sparring partner for Creed. Which, you know, he's alright. He's kind of going to take the money and be the sparring partner, that's fine with Rocky. But then the promoter, Jurgens, a real smarmy-looking guy, asks him if he wants to fight for the title. Rocky says, no, right here, he has as much confidence in his fighting ability as Adrian did on their date. But... Eventually, Rocky kind of gives in, you know. There was, he had a conversation earlier in the film with a bartender about, about taking a shot. And this is Rocky's chance to uh, take a shot. And he takes it. And that part of the conference is quite interesting. Uh, you see Apollo standing there all uh, charismatic and talkative. But Rocky is basically a block of wood. And they're watching this conference. Uh, Agent's on the couch next to Rocky. And she laughs when Rocky calls out to her. So she's showing a little more confidence, a little more life, a little more smile. Even though she's still a little awkward, like... Rocky actually mentions to her, he called out to her on the TV, and uh, 
She kind of looked at him like, why'd you do that? But Gazo, uh, everybody, eventually we're going to find out that everybody knows that Rocky is going to fight Apollo Creed. So Gazo gives Rocky uh, a $500 gift for training expenses. You know, just tell them not to worry about it. Is it strange that I like the loan shark more than anybody else in this film? He seems like the nicest guy in the movie, and he's a loan shark. Ordering people to get their thumbs broken. So, so Rocky is, it's clear, Rocky is unhappy with his life. And I think he feels that Mickey is gold digging when Mickey comes over to his apartment and offers to be his manager. Now that he has a title shot, I think he feels like Mickey is gold digging after previously putting Rocky out of the gym. And now that he has a title shot, Mick is, Mick is offering his help. And Rocky just goes on this tirade. Basically about how everything stinks. Took me long enough to get here. Ten years you come to my house. Huh? What's the matter? You don't like my house? My house stinks? That's right, it stinks! I ain't no favors from you! Don't fall around me! Talk about your prime. What about my prime, Mick? At least you had a prime! I ain't had no prime, I ain't had nothing. Legs are going, everything is going, no one's getting no nothing. Guy comes up, offers me a fight. Big deal, wanna fight the fight? Yeah, I'll fight the big fight. I wouldn't wanna fight that big fight, it was gonna happen to me. I wanna get that! I wanna get that! And you want me ringside and see it? Do you? You want to help me out? Huh? Do you want to see me get my face kicked in? Legs ain't working. Nothing's working. They go, go on, fight the chair. Yeah, I'll fight him. My face kicked in. And you come around here. You want to move in here with me? Come on here. It's my house. Real nice. Come on in and move. It stinks. Two place stinks. Which apparently was improvised on the set and was actually inspired by the fact that the apartment that they shot in as Rocky's apartment really did stink. So basically, uh, Rocky uh, you know, throws Mick out, Mick leaves, but he walks slowly out and Rocky eventually just chase Mick down the street. And we have no idea what is said between the two men, but it's clear they've come to some kind of agreement. And the next morning, Rocky is drinking his breakfast of champions, five raw eggs, and nothing like a glass of salmonella to get your day started. And Stallone drank that, folks. There is no cut between Rocky cracking the eggs and drinking the yolks. So, as nauseating as five raw eggs sounds, Sylvester Stallone downed it. Unless it wasn't actually raw eggs, but it looked pretty convincing. So, there's really nothing Hollywood about Rocky and Adrian's relationship, at least not yet. It seems to be progressing at a very real pace. You know, it's a slow burn throughout the film, and as you can see as the movie advances, she's becoming more outgoing and showing a little more personality, and she'll start dressing in more colorful outfits, too, as the film goes on, showing a little more confidence to uh, pull those outfits off. She's not dressed in the uh, dribs and drabs that we saw early on in the, in the movie. Polly, on the other hand, is kind of looking to exploit Rocky's title shot. And that's something that's going to continue throughout the series. Paulie is kind of a hanger-on, and he is going to cause some trouble for Rocky and family as things go on. But there is one thing that is clear in the lead-up to the fight. Apollo is not taking this seriously. But his trainer is suddenly concerned after, at least I think that's Duke, and he's concerned after watching uh, Rocky beat up a dead cow on national TV. You know, he sees, I think, he sees the intensity in Rocky's face, and he's probably thinking to himself, oh, shit, this guy means business. So, and Christmas comes, and they like uh, every uh, 
family Christmas, somebody always seems to go bananas. This time it's Polly who feels like everyone owes him something. This is where Polly lets out that you know, he did, took some role in raising Adrian, although what actually he did has not necessarily been outlined in any place. But this is what happens when you know somebody who is a raging alcoholic. Sometimes they just go batshit crazy for no reason, and sometimes all the people can around them can do is either remove themselves from the situation or you know, ride out the storm and hope the person doesn't do anything that they're going to ultimately regret. It's not a good situation for anyone involved, and Rocky is trying to calm Paulie down and make him appeal to the better angels of his nature, but you know what? Adrian's right. What does she owe him? He's done nothing but belittle her his whole life, but bottom line, Paulie is looking for a way out as well. These are not happy people. Life has beaten them down, and they'll grasp at anything that they think can help make an improvement. Then, very shortly after swinging a bat around in a craze, Polly shows up at the gym and wants to slap the name of the meat market on Robbie's on Rocky's robe. So I guess they've made up, or more likely, Polly doesn't remember what happened. So now we're getting toward the end of the movie, and here is the training montage: shot gorilla style through most of Philadelphia without permits, no nothing, just kind of Stallone and the camera out getting these shots. So most of the people you're seeing in the film here are real people, and. As this is playing, the Rocky theme is playing. I am not sure which film introduces the uh, Eye of the Tiger as a, as a montage song, but this time it's just the Rocky theme, which is also on, on another one of the most iconic movie themes. I'll put it right up there with anything by John Williams or Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future score. You know, you know what this is when it starts playing. Now, in bed the night before the fight, after having kind of gone through the arena and checked things out, Rocky decides what a win is for him. You know, you would, you would think that a win for Rocky would be winning the fight, but, you know, he's going to be a realist about this. He's not out to beat the champ. He's out to go the distance and prove he belongs. That is what anyone would at least want to do in that situation, you know. On some level, Rocky is just happy to be there. But, you know, if you go up against the champ and you hang for him for 15 rounds in a nationally televised event, that's people are going to notice that. And... I think on some level, Rocky knows if he's going to have any kind of career as a pro boxer, it's going to be because of this. And if he squanders this by you know, by getting knocked out before round three, what has he accomplished? So, he wants to show everyone and himself that he can do this. So, I guess now it's fight time. Rocky comes out to no fanfare at all because he's nobody. He is just some guy that Apollo Creed pulled out of a, out of a directory. And now Creed comes out to a ton of fanfare. He's dressed as George Washington riding out on a boat, exuding all kinds of confidence, and obviously this fight means more to Rocky than it does to Creed. To Creed, this is supposed to be just an exhibition. And he uh, kind of strips down to uh, dress up as Uncle Sam when he gets to the ring, continuing the American motif. This fight is supposed to be on New Year's Day, and they're celebrating the bicentennial, so this is clearly the New Year's Day in 1776. I'm not necessarily sure why a bicentennial fight wasn't fought on July 4th, 1976, which was the true bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which is really seen as the birth of the United States more so than the end of the Revolutionary War. But for, I guess for the sake of this movie, it doesn't really matter why it was in January instead of July. So I really don't have a ton to say about the fight, but Rocky does score a one-punch knockdown, kind of similar to that Justice League International issue where Batman puts, scores a one-punch knockdown on Guy Gardner. But Rocky just shocks everyone, and this has never happened to Apollo Creed before. And all of a sudden, Creed has to take this fight a little more seriously. He's <clears throat> already embarrassed a little bit. And after the first round, Creed's trainer kind of gives him 
gives us what this fight means to Creed. It's nothing. It's a show. It's to make the, the, the champ look good and gracious, giving there's nobody a shot. Now, the problem with something like this for Creed is he has nothing to gain by this. And as we're going to see, yeah, he wins. But by Rocky going the distance, Rocky will score the moral victory and actually embarrass the champ who should not have let this puncher from South Philly last 15 rounds. Duke told him to end it in two. And as the uh, the rounds go on, you see the uh, fatigue in both fighters. Both are staggering. There's a point in round 14 where Rocky's down on the ground. Mickey is imploring Rocky to kind of stay down and let the fight end. He proved his point, but unlike Apollo, Rocky has nothing to lose here. Nothing would have been lost by Rocky not getting up here in round 14. But he's fighting for pride and to prove that he belongs. Even if nobody else knew Rocky could have gotten up in round 14, if he doesn't get up, Rocky would have known that he gave up. And he wouldn't have been able to live with that knowledge. So, up he goes. This might be the only shot he ever gets, and he's going to make the most of it. Can't waste it. Like I said, one of the themes of the movie. When you get your shot, you cannot waste it. And both trainers want to stop the fight before round 15, but both refuse. So, you know, Rocky will refuse to stop it because... You know, it's important to him to finish all 15 rounds of this fight. And I will admit to laughing when he told either Mickey or one of the other uh, guys in his corner that if they stop the fight, he'd kill them. And Creed refuses to, can't really stop the fight either because how would the optics have looked there? You know, Creed's been all about optics this whole movie. If he refused to go to the 15th round against, like I said, there's no one from South Philly. What does that say about the champ? So the match ends with both of them in a bear hug. Creed wins by split decision. By split decision, Creed wins by split decision, retaining his title. I'm not sure why this was a title match. I mean, I don't know if you know. I remember watching pro wrestling, and there would be non-title matches. I'm not sure of any match. I don't know how boxing worked, but an ex- you would think an exhibition match between the champion and a nobody from South Philly would not necessarily be a title match. But maybe you know he put the title on the line to make himself look a little more gracious. I don't know. It doesn't seem as though this needed to be a title match. I mean. Rocky 2, yeah, that needs to be a title match. But this doesn't necessarily need to be. So, the uh, TV guy is trying to give Rocky an interview, and he could care less. He, he's getting asked a ton of questions rapid fire. Rocky just yelling for Adrian. And she's trying to fight through the crowd to uh, get to get to him. And Paul he distracts the security guard. They kiss in the ring. Probably the only thing really Hollywood about this ending is kind of the way Rocky and Adrian profess their love for each, to each other in the ring. But that's how this movie ends, you know. With Rocky scoring a moral victory. And most... Sports movies probably would have had Rocky win the fight, but I'm glad Apollo wins it. Because, like I said, Rocky didn't need to win. He wins by going all 15 rounds and making the most of his opportunity. Now, obviously, this movie has spawned four sequels throughout the rest of the 70s and the mid-80s. Came back in 2006's Rocky Balboa. And Stallone is still playing Rocky in the Creed films, where Michael B. Jordan plays Creed's son, Adonis. First Creed came out, directed by Ryan Coogler, an excellent film, and... I believe Creed 2 is going to come out this November. And like what I mentioned before, what I like about this film is that Rocky, while Rocky's profession is, is boxing, this film is about the character, his life, and how the events of the film shape his life. And for that reason, I'm going to cover the next five films over time. You know, it's kind of the same thing I love about the Lethal Weapon series. While the A-plots are, kind of, are up and down in quality, I love that the characters' lives advance from sequel to sequel. They're not static characters. And, you know, anytime you de- develop character... You know, I'm going to be with you, even if the story is not that great. So, eventually, I will get to Rocky Two. Next time, though, we're going to advance to 1977 before I go back to Superman coverage. 
And I'm going to talk about the blockbuster of blockbusters, Star Wars. Until then, you can send me feedback at manofscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if uh, you can also leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts. That'll help other people find the show. So until next time, folks, have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.